Welcome to Education Portals, a podcast supported by Portals Academy. We are each month taking a look at um, some of the data, some of the research around schooling, around education, especially that which we are interested in here at Portals. So I hope this is a blessing to you. Uh, We do it not only for our own benefit, but to share some of the things we're finding uh, that lead to some of the decisions we make at Portals. Uh, This month, we took a careful look at Betsy DeVos' Hostages No More, The Fight for Educational Freedom and the Future of the American Mind. Uh, I'm Dr. Dickers, and this is Education Portals. Betsy DeVos in Hostages No More uh, really puts out a book that's a reflection on her time as Secretary of Education, but also kind of a biography. Uh, She does point out that um, she came in and served as the Secretary of Education during a really uh, difficult time with COVID hitting while she was in office Uh, and a massive school shutdown happening. But the issues in education were there long before they started closing schools. She goes all the way back to Horace Mann, the father of American public schools or government schools. And she quotes him as talking essentially about how children are essentially hostages and the government has to treat them that way because oftentimes parents don't get what they're trying to do from the government level which is an elitist view, right? We in the government understand what kids need, and sometimes parents don't know what they need, so we have to hold them as hostages so the kids get what we think they need. A flawed perspective, admittedly, um, but Horace Mann saw a lot of his solutions in an industrial world, and they needed to systematize and create average citizens that could work in average factories. And there's nothing wrong with factory work, But when that's the predominance of the work, then you create schools to match. When you have a more diverse economy like we do today, we need people to work in factories today, but we also need people to work in a variety of other settings, including agriculture, right? So COVID masked a decline that we've seen in math and reading scores since federal intervention in schools. And Betsy DeVos in her book outlines some of those issues. She gives a a sense of where she came from, a family that believed in things like hard work, community, philanthropy, uh, not things unique to any particular race, but things that actually uh, are part of Western civilization, things that we do believe are better for humanity. And a lot of those beliefs come from a biblical worldview. She points at one of the hinge moments in American history. That's 1979, the U.S. Department of Education was formed. It created a national bureaucracy to have a focus on education. Since 1979, national, the national focus has only grown. So at this point, the Department of Education at the national level is gigantic, but it's really not that old. It's only about 40, 43 years old in our history. Yet it hasn't created solutions. It hasn't fixed anything that it set out to fix. In fact, as of last year, billion went into K-12 education to get worse results than we were getting in 1979. She points out some of the, the advantages of charter schools, school vouchers. When you allow caring parents, caring teachers, and caring administrators to design and build their own schools, they actually generally do a great work. She remembers her own background being a tutor at the Potter's House realizing that even in the toughest of neighborhoods, you can create environments where learning is still engaging and something that kids aspire to. And it really doesn't matter 
it, it's a common human trait to love learning and that to love learning should be the basis of education. I think when you look at some of those pieces, you see Betsy DeVos having kind of an eternal optimism around education, as she should. And her goal in life was to fundamentally change how public dollars were used towards education. She sees public education is that anytime you educate, that's a public act. So the goal of the government should be to support education in all its forms, not just in one form. But one thing stands against that. A firmly entrenched, firmly polarized set of school unions that really exist to protect the current system, not innovation. So proudly in Minnesota, we were the site in 1992 of one of the first charter schools, right? But she points at a lot of those firsts that have been happening largely due to parent demand. Parents are not getting what they want out of their local school. And, you know, you can't stop a devoted parent when they want to get what's best for their kids. So some of the changes that have happened have happened in some smaller scales, but they've been fought at every step by the school unions. Not necessarily advocating for kids, they advocate for schools. Not necessarily advocating for teachers, they advocate for schools. Schools of a certain form where the unions can continue to take money out of teachers' paychecks without permission. So that's the battle they're going to fight because it gives them millions, if not billions of dollars over time to support the political parties they want to. And 98% of all public union money goes straight to the Democratic Party, especially the far left of the Democratic Party. So DeVos comes into office under Trump. He brings in a known advocate for school choice. And we get a little glimpse of how well she worked with Donald Trump. And it's not always good, but you start to see one of the most notable things about Bessie DeVos. Despite what the media says about her, in her book where she can say anything she wants, she's incredibly graceful with people, even the people she disagrees with. And I appreciate that. In an area where everything's polarized, and if you don't agree with me, you're an evil person, DeVos does an excellent job of actually giving credit where credit is due. Even to the head of the school unions, she talks about a trip she took uh, with um, Weingarten to go and visit a school together. And she wasn't treated with grace back, but she offered as much grace as she could, or at least she paints herself that way. And, you know, if you think back on the various instances of her public uh, image, you think back and you think, you know, she was pretty graceful with the amount of uh, vitriol that came from the media towards her term in office. So her book follows out the same way. She's clearly a person of hope. She's a person of great energy, and she's a person that has a lot of grace, even with her enemies. She mentions great schools. I think where her book really picks up is in chapter five. So if you're going to pick up the book, which I recommend, from chapter five on, you get a summary of some of the great thing that's, that's happening in education and some of the key problems in education. She goes through a list of, of great schools she was able to visit while she was the Secretary of Education. Schools that are defying the odds. Schools that are innovative. Schools that allow for free speech and free ideas. Schools that actually take a little chip out of the, the old way of doing things by doing something a little different. She even mentions Acton Academy, which kind of provides a kit for people to build their own micro schools. Um, really, Acton Academy we see as kind of a secular version of what we're doing here at Portals. 
um, where you put the give people the engine and let them build their own institutions. Uh, so she even looks at those. She even mentions micro schools and looks at those as options. So it's interesting when the former Secretary of Education for our national government is looking at little things like a micro school and seeing that as a viable option for education. And we see that not just as validation, but a recognition that we do have allies in key places around this country that want what's best for kids, not what's best for, for teachers or school unions. She gives credit to teachers, to administrators trying to do a great job. She really sizes up the issue that you have a lot of adults trying to do the right things, but when the system's broken, it's a difficult thing to fix. Her eternal optimism comes when she starts talking about how to fix it. In chapter eight, she moves on to educational freedom. This idea that schools have gotten bloated expenses, so true, and we're seeing that at portals. We've put more money more testing, and more rules on school systems with little to no impact, even negative impact. Since COVID, suicide rates are up 50% amongst teenage girls. 1.5 million kids left the government-run systems during COVID. A number of them have never returned. And, we, and when you ask where they go, DeVoy's points out that the homeschooling has doubled since COVID started. When we don't know that all of those homeschoolers are going to continue to homeschool, because some of them might be overwhelmed or stressed out because they got into it without really doing the homework ahead of time. And we look at that sort of thing as, as positive change, actually. But the reason they were leaving, the reason why we had mental health issues growing, is because people could see what was going on inside the schools was largely a political movement. The 1619 Project, she talks about that a little bit, obviously trying to rewrite American history to make America into a bad thing historically, versus looking at the both the bad and good of America and recognizing that the good things that we've added are definitely contribute, got not just contributions to our own national history, but contributions to the world. So taking a slant on those things, education, parents are starting to see, especially with COVID, when it gets broadcast in their house every, through a laptop or a Zoom call, they get to see what's going on inside the classrooms. So it's not just about the topic maker and the content, it's about indoctrination. So schools becoming a tool of indoctrination has become a, a concept that parents really have to wrestle with today. They're not the schools that we grew up in. Something's changed. And in fact, if you go to our grandparents' generation, they're not the schools when it comes to cost either. The average cost, if you adjust for inflation in 1965, was just under $5,000 a student. Today, it's just over $15,000 a student. So adjusting for inflation, we've tripled the cost per child for education without any results. So you'd say, where, where does all the money go? DeVos documents the rise of adults in the school building. We've had a rise of special programs, a rise of administrative layers, uh, a rise of types of teachers that need to be there, pull-out classes, special needs classes. So we've dramatically increased the number of adults in the building far beyond the increase in students. So what do you do? In Hostages No, no More, DeVos turns her attention to the solution. And as she gives lots of examples, overwhelmingly, her solution is education savings accounts or vouchers, where each family gets their own money to spend wherever they want for education, and they can even spend that money in pieces. So they can get this class from this building and this class from this program, and they can put together their own educational day. She paints a picture of an idyllic world 
where each kid gets a customized learning plan because they've picked what they want. She argues that in creating competition for schools, you're actually helping government schools at the same time because they'll get more competitive when they start to see what needs their students have. And Or if a school refuses to change, they just simply won't have students left and they close down their doors just like any organization would have to close if they're meeting no one's needs. Yet she misses something here and, and overwhelmingly this book is worth reading. But from a portal's perspective, we ask this question. If your view of government schools is that they're faulting and your solution is to change the government funding for schools, you're missing a key idea that anytime there's government funding, there's government politics that come with it. So regardless of painting this wonderful world of education savings accounts, you still have to convince 50 state legislators that that education savings accounts are the path to go. That's a huge uphill battle with teacher union money fighting you at every step and at every place. So one question we have here at Portals, and we think this is something that DeVos would truly agree with, what if we don't need the state money to build what we want? What if we look at the cost of schooling and go back to our 1965 numbers, and we say, well, wait, since 1965, the costs of books can be digitized, the costs of resources, the, the means of communication have changed. The disruption to technology around information and communication has so dramatically changed the resources, we think we can bring the costs down even more. If we lower the costs using new kinds of partnerships, new kinds of publishing deals, new media production devices, new distribution channels for textbooks and movies and resources, and we take mass data-driven change to the education process based on feedback from every student and every parent, we start grading the curriculum and the lesson plans instead of grading the students. That creates a feedback loop that we've never seen in education before. So what if that feedback actually helped with new efficiencies too? We, for, for instance, could be spending a lot of money on a program that actually doesn't get very good feedback. Well, then why are we spending so much money on it? And we can accurately start to put funding and money where we see success in education because we're tracking things. Educational savings accounts don't provide that kind of feedback. What we need isn't just more school options, though we think options are wonderful and she's right in that regard. What we need are innovations that go with those options and new systems that actually compete with a government-run system. We need parent-driven systems. We think of this in terms of some of the solutions that even DeVos brings up in her book. Flexible schedules, learning at your own pace. We would add time to read and read some more. If we provide those kinds of things in a lower cost system, we actually don't need the state money at all. We can bring costs down to an affordable fee that looks a lot more like a Netflix subscription than it does like a school $15,000 a year expense. So if that's the case, and we rethink what schools are. Schools are where students and adults meet for learning. That meeting can happen in a digital space, in a building space. As long as learning is happening and we can document that that process is going on to the satisfaction of the parents, not the government, we should be able to rethink how we do some of these sorts of things. So where DeVos has lots of solutions that have to do with government money, and that makes sense as the Secretary of Education, we ask the question, aren't there solutions that don't require the government money in the first place? And if that's the case, we don't need the permission of politicians to educate our kids anymore. 
At least that's the portal's perspective. Thanks for joining Education Portals this month. We'll be back next month with a little more information from the world of education. God bless you. Bye.